Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Made by Podster. He had actually made it clear, he thought. He didn't want anything serious, and he had told her so. Yet their brief affair ended in a curious stalking case that stretched over several years. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and today in Tracing Darkness, I will tell you about a most peculiar case, a story that begins with a recently divorced man who decides to start internet dating and ends in a truly incredible murder case that I'm actually a little surprised hasn't got more media coverage because it contains so many strange twists. In 2012, 34-year-old Dave Krupa found himself in a new life situation. He had left his wife of 10 years and moved out of the couple's home. He had two children with his ex-wife, and after the divorce, they decided to share custody. Dave and his ex-wife Amy had long tried to make their relationship work, but had finally come to the conclusion that divorce was the best option for all parties. They remained friends after the divorce and were able to resolve issues such as custody of the children without arguments or disagreements. Dave lived in Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha is Nebraska's largest city and home to nearly half a million people. For the first time in over a decade, Dave was single, and he certainly didn't want to get into a serious relationship right away. But he was interested in dating and meeting new people, and signed up for several different online dating services, including a dating app called Plenty of Fish. Dave, who was an auto mechanic, quickly adjusted to his new life as a single man and enjoyed the fact that he could live alone in his new apartment while his children were with their mother. Dave chatted with dozens of women on various dating sites. He made it clear to them straight away that he didn't want a serious relationship. He wanted to meet interesting people for a coffee and, if things went well, to spend an evening with them. To avoid misunderstandings, he told all the women he dated straight away. David had coffee with a few and spent a particularly pleasant evening with a woman named Liz, 
whose real name was Shanna Elizabeth, but who preferred to be called Liz. Liz had two children the same age as Dave's and ran her own cleaning business. Liz and Dave's relationship could in no way be called serious. They went out for coffee a few times and spent a few nights in Dave's apartment, but both felt there was nothing more to it than that. In October 2012, Dave was having a day like many others at the garage where he worked when a woman named Carrie Farver came in and asked for help with her car. The woman immediately caught his attention. She was interesting and he wanted to impress her. Dave felt a spark between him and Carrie and they got along well. Dave was too shy to ask Carrie out though. He'd got used to approaching women online and didn't quite know how to behave face-to-face. Dave decided that he would take heart and ask Carrie out when she came to pick up her car, which was in for repairs. But Dave didn't have to wait that long. A week later, Dave was surfing the dating app Plenty of Fish when he came across Carrie's profile. Dave couldn't believe his luck and immediately sent Carrie a message asking if she recognized him. The two started chatting, and when Carrie came into the garage to pick up her car, they exchanged phone numbers and agreed to meet again soon. Dave was still not looking for a serious relationship, but he still wanted to get to know Carrie better. On their first date at a local restaurant, Carrie told Dave about herself. She was a 37-year-old single mother of a teenage son, and she had been married twice before. Carrie had her son at 22 and raised him all by herself, Carrie worked as a computer programmer at a company that, to their surprise, was just over a mile from Dave's apartment. Carrie said she lived in a small town in Iowa called Macedonia. Macedonia was only 30 miles from Omaha, so even though Dave and Carrie lived in different states, the distance wasn't prohibitive. Carrie said she had always liked working with computers and had been lucky enough to get the job in Omaha just a few months earlier. Carrie didn't tell Dave this on their first date, but after the birth of her son, now a teenager, she had suffered a severe depression. Doctors had eventually diagnosed Carrie with bipolar disorder. Although she had been taking medication for her illness, she sometimes suffered severe symptoms, such as not always being able to get out of bed and sometimes having to stay in bed for days at a time. When she was at her worst, Carrie's mother had helped look after her grandson so that Carrie could get some rest. Carrie didn't always want to take her medication because she felt it made her unable to feel her emotions. However, the new job had brought joy into Carrie's life, and for over a year, she'd been doing very well, and the illness had barely affected her daily life. Dave and Carrie both agreed that they didn't want things to get serious between them, Carrie told Dave that she had a very aggressive ex-husband whom she had had to apply for a restraining order against a few years earlier. Carrie was so traumatized by this relationship that she wanted to keep her freedom and only date people for fun. Because Dave's apartment was so close to Carrie's workplace, Carrie often spent the night at Dave's after a night out. Her son was big enough to look after himself at school, and if he got into trouble while Carrie was away, Carrie's mother lived so close to her that she could come to his rescue instead. Dave and Carrie had talked about the fact that although they both thought it was nice that Carrie was staying over at Dave's, they didn't want to make their relationship official. They didn't even feel like they were lovers, even though to an outsider, it would seem that way. On Monday, November 12, 2012, 
Carrie had spent the night at Dave's and had woken up early to prepare for the day's work. Dave has subsequently said that he remembers Carrie sitting on the sofa with her laptop while Dave went off to work in the workshop. They had agreed to meet again in the evening after work to do something together. Immediately after Dave arrived at work, he received a text message from Carrie. When he saw what it said, he was a little surprised, but also a little annoyed. Carrie had written and asked Dave if they should move in together, permanently. Dave had a clear understanding that Carrie and he had agreed that taking the relationship to the next level was not in the cards at all. They had talked about it the day before, and there they had both expressed that if they were going to move in together someday, that day was far in the future. When Dave replied to Carrie that he didn't want to move in together, Carrie sent back a bitter and angry message. Okay, fuck you. I'm with someone else. Don't contact me again. I hate you. Dave was stunned by the message, but took the end of the affair as a dodged bullet since Carrie's true nature had been revealed to him so quickly. Dave didn't have time to reflect further on the proceedings during the working day, but when he returned to the apartment in the evening with all of Carrie's belongings gone, he wondered at the sudden change in her demeanor. She had seemed gentle and reasonable, so he couldn't understand what had brought about the change. When Dave checked his Facebook that night, he discovered that Carrie had also deleted him from her friends list. Dave wasn't the only one who had suddenly received a strange message from Carrie. Carrie's mother, Nancy, had also received a text message from her daughter, announcing that she had accepted a new job in Kansas and was moving there. The message surprised her mother because Carrie had expressed that she was happy with her current job, which she had started that year. It was not uncommon, however, for Carrie to make sudden changes in her life without warning, when her mental health problems were at their worst and she had not yet received appropriate medication, Carrie had sometimes behaved in a similar manner. Nancy called a friend of Carrie's who told her that Carrie had talked to her about applying for a job in Kansas, but even the friend thought it odd that Carrie had left so suddenly and without her son, Max. Carrie had written to her mother that she would still take care of Max, but that it was better for him to finish his education in Iowa. Because he was so close to finishing high school, it wouldn't make sense for him to change schools. Nancy didn't hear from Carrie again for the rest of the week, even though she tried both calling and texting her. The following week, Carrie also failed to show up for several important events. The whole family was attending Carrie's stepbrother's wedding on Friday, and Carrie had promised to help with many of the preparations. However, Carrie did not attend the rehearsal the night before the wedding, nor did she participate in the wedding ceremony itself. Carrie was also supposed to organize a baby shower for a good friend, but she ended up staying away without helping with the arrangements or canceling at all. The Monday after the wedding, Nancy decided she would report her daughter missing, she was worried about her health, but she also began to fear that something even worse might have happened. Carrie would have felt very bad about missing her stepbrother's wedding. He was very close to her and meant a lot to her. After Nancy made the report, two police officers from Macedonia's local police showed up at her address to hear the details of her daughter's disappearance. Nancy told the officers that Carrie seemed happy in her new job and that Dave had clearly had a positive impact on Carrie as well. Carrie had told her mother about their affair and Dave had also visited Carrie's home at least once. 
it was difficult for the police to take the report of a missing person seriously because Carrie had sent her mother a few text messages telling her what her plans were and where she was going. The police therefore reminded Nancy that, as an adult, Carrie had the right to disappear and not contact her family or friends if she wanted to. When Nancy told the police that her daughter had bipolar disorder, they lost all interest in the case. They decided that the illness was probably linked to her disappearance and that Carrie would probably return home when she was better. The police contacted Carrie's workplace where they found out she had quit her job via text message at the same time she had sent her mother the message about the new job in Kansas. Since this only confirmed the theory that Carrie had left town voluntarily, the investigation stopped there. However, the police entered Carrie's missing person report into their system, but told Nancy that no further investigation would be launched. While Nancy was beside herself with worry, Dave was annoyed and angry. He'd been receiving aggressive and rude text messages from Carrie for days on end, saying things like, I hate you, you've ruined my life, and I hope you die. For some reason, Carrie's text also included hurtful and rude things about Dave's former girlfriend, Liz. This surprised Dave, as Liz and Carrie had only met once in passing. Dave and Carrie had been on a date, and Carrie was on her way home when Liz dropped by unannounced to pick up some things she had left in Dave's apartment. The two women had passed each other in the stairwell for a few seconds, but had not spoken. Dave thought that Carrie must have become a little obsessed with Liz in that brief moment, because in her messages she spoke disparagingly about Liz's appearance, calling her a whore and a cow. A few days later, just over a week after Carrie's sudden disappearance, Dave received an angry phone call from Liz. Liz wanted to know how Dave's crazy ex-girlfriend had got her phone number and email. Carrie had been bombarding her with rude texts and email messages, and she wanted answers about what was going on. Some of the messages seemed downright threatening, and Liz told Dave she was scared. Dave went to Liz's house to see what was in the messages, and he could hardly believe it when he saw all the outrageous things Carrie had written to Liz. Dave apologized to Liz, regretting that she had now also been subjected to Carrie's whims, and said that if the messages didn't stop soon, they would have to report it to the police. However, it ended up being Liz who contacted the police. Ten days after Dave had last seen Carrie, someone broke into Liz's home and spray-painted the words, Dave's whore on the wall of the carport. When she reported it, Liz told police that Carrie had harassed her with numerous abusive texts and emails, and that she was therefore convinced that it was Carrie who had broken into her home. Liz pointed out to the police that she had two minor children who were sometimes home alone, so it was very uncomfortable for her to think about what might happen if Carrie came back to her house while the children were there alone. The officer spoke to Dave, who Liz had urged the officers to go to. At first, the officers seemed to think that Dave was somehow involved in the burglary, but when he showed the text messages he had also received from Carrie, the officers thought that Dave was just an innocent bystander in the case. Since Dave and Carrie lived in different states, Nebraska police apparently didn't see the missing persons report for Carrie that Carrie's mother Nancy had filed in Iowa. In Iowa, Carrie was wanted as a missing person, while in Nebraska, she was wanted because police believed she was an unstable and potentially dangerous stalker. 
It may be that the different reports were related to the way police investigated the case. In Nebraska, no one thought Carrie was missing. She was probably just avoiding the police, they thought, and being confronted by Dave face-to-face. In Iowa, Carrie's mother Nancy had filed for temporary custody of Carrie's son Max. Someone had to take care of him. Nancy received messages from Carrie from time to time, but Carrie never agreed to talk to her mother on the phone. One day, Nancy received a message from her daughter with a picture of a check for $5,000 and a message that Carrie had sold her bedroom furniture to a woman who would come by and pick it up at her address and that Nancy should let the buyer into Carrie's house. On the check, the signatures were undecipherable and there was no additional contact information, which made Nancy skeptical. She sent a message to Carrie that she would not let anyone into Carrie's home based on the text message alone, she would hear it from Carrie on the phone. Nancy could never in her wildest imagination have predicted how angry Carrie would be that she refused to let the buyer into the house. Carrie bombarded her mother with messages about how she was the worst mother ever and that she had ruined her life. Nancy found it hard to believe that the messages were really from Carrie, but since she couldn't get in touch with her daughter, she had no choice but to try to live with her daughter's behavior and move on with her life. By the latter part of 2012, Carrie's harassment had become so massive that Dave had to change his phone number many times. He could receive up to 60 texts from her in a day, and on top of that came emails, sometimes hundreds in a single day. Even when Dave changed his phone number, Carrie always managed to get his new number somehow. She also continued to harass Liz. Dave and Liz nicknamed her Crazy Carrie and regularly updated each other on the things she had written to them. Carrie's behavior was not only outrageous and transgressive, but also genuinely frightening. There was one episode in particular where Dave was sitting in his living room and received a message from Carrie saying, I see you're watching TV and you've made yourself comfortable on the sofa. You're wearing a blue t-shirt. So Carrie must have been lurking outside Dave's windows. In one of the messages to Dave, Carrie also wrote, It's so good to see you. Unfortunately, Dave's ex-wife and the mother of his two children, Amy, was not spared Carrie's slanderous messages either. Several times a day, Carrie wrote to Amy, asking her to stay away from Dave. Amy took the messages in her stride, not thinking that Carrie would hurt her or anyone else. Dave, on the other hand, worried about his children and looked around in a paranoid manner when they were at his house. He feared that Carrie was watching him somewhere. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When Dave and Liz both experienced harassment, their relationship heated up again and they started dating. Dave still didn't want a serious relationship, but he liked spending time with Liz. Carrie's harassment continued, and sometimes when Liz and Dave were together, such as if they were watching a movie, their phones would beep at almost the same time with grotesque messages from Carrie. As Liz and Dave's relationship developed, Carrie's messages also became more obsessed. She wrote that she loved Dave, that she was pregnant and expecting his child, that she wanted him back. Dave knew there was no way he could father her child, so he ignored the messages, seeing them as another example of Carrie's paranoid delusions. At one point, Carrie announced in a message that she had rented an apartment near Dave's so she could be closer to him. Dave never saw Carrie where he lived, but in January 2013, he noticed Carrie's black SUV parked in the yard of a nearby apartment complex. There was a big pile of snow on and around the car, so it looked like it hadn't been driven anywhere in a while. Dave contacted the police and said he had found Carrie's car and suspected she had moved into the property next to his. When police checked the property next door, they said apartment 12D, where Carrie had claimed to live, didn't exist at all. However, the car belonged to Carrie and was taken to the police station for further investigation. When the officers entered the car's information into their database, they discovered that the car was linked to a missing persons alert in the neighboring state of Iowa. Police in Nebraska contacted the police in Iowa and told them that Carrie was suspected of stalking her ex-boyfriend and his new girlfriend. The Iowa police passed the information on to Carrie's mother, Nancy, who was stunned by the new information. Nancy didn't think Carrie would stalk anyone, and the absurd messages Carrie had sent were not something she thought Carrie would write. However, the police had only become more convinced that Carrie's mental health was unstable and that she therefore did not want to return home. In Nebraska, Carrie's car was searched thoroughly, but nothing was found in it. The car had obviously been cleaned very carefully as no fingerprints were found on the door handle or steering wheel. Some sand was found in the bottom of the car and possibly a trace of a spilled drink on the driver's seat, but otherwise no trace was found in the car. There was a half-empty box of mints by the club compartment of the car, which the police took away for further examination. A fingerprint was found on it, but when the police entered the print into their database, it did not match any profile. I'm not sure why the police searched the car so thoroughly, as the police were still not of the opinion that Carrie was in trouble. Perhaps the cops suspected that the car had been stolen from Carrie, and by catching the burglars, they might be able to track Carrie down and get her to stop harassing Dave. Carrie's son had received a few messages on Facebook from his mother, who had also updated her Facebook profile from time to time since her disappearance. To her son, Carrie wrote that she was preparing for him to move in with her in Kansas, but Max, the son, didn't really believe it was actually Carrie he was communicating with, So, to be sure, he tried to get her to answer personal questions that only Carrie would be able to answer. Max might ask, for example, what they had done on a holiday trip a few years earlier, or what TV program he had loved watching as a child. 
Carrie never answered any of these questions, but continued to be in touch with her son. Nancy also began to suspect that someone else was communicating with her from Carrie's phone. Indeed, the messages were full of linguistic errors, and Carrie used to be very zealous about using correct spelling and grammar. Carrie had not reached out to her son at Christmas or for his birthday, nor had she attended her own father's funeral when he died at Christmas after years of stomach cancer. Despite these facts, police still believe there was no reason to believe anything had happened to Carrie. In February 2013, Dave suddenly received a picture message from Carrie. The picture showed a woman with a cloth gag over her mouth and her hands tied behind her back. The picture was blurry, but underneath it, Carrie had written that she had kidnapped Liz. Dave was a little startled by the message, but suspected the picture was of someone else, perhaps a friend of Carrie's who must be involved in Carrie's bizarre behavior. Dave called Liz, who picked up the phone, and laughed when Dave told her what message he had received from Carrie. As Dave and Liz continued to receive daily threats, they hoped that the police would soon find Carrie. She must not have time for much else, they thought. It had to be a full-time job considering how many messages she sent. Although Liz and Dave had some sort of relationship, Dave was still active on various dating sites, and many of the women he met online he also befriended on Facebook, as it was easier to chat there. However, many of the women quickly broke contact with Dave. They received threatening messages from Carrie's Facebook account. It seemed that Carrie was keeping an eye on Dave's friends list and that every time a new woman appeared on there, she sent her threatening and abusive messages. In order not to cause problems for others, Dave then decided to stop internet dating. In August 2013, nine months after Carrie disappeared, Liz's house caught fire. The house burned to the ground and all of Liz's pets died in the fire. Luckily, neither Liz nor her children were home when it happened. When the fire brigade had examined the house, they told her that the fire had been started. Liz then went to the police to tell them about Carrie and how she had been stalking and threatening her for months. Criminal charges were filed against Carrie and Nebraska police became increasingly eager to find her and hold her accountable for her actions. Dave felt guilty because he considered that what Liz had been subjected to was his fault. Eventually, Dave had to take time off work because of Carrie's harassment. She rang Dave down on his work phone so real customers couldn't get through to the workshop. She didn't say anything when the phone was answered, but hung up immediately as soon as someone in the workshop answered the phone. A few months after the fire at Liz's house, someone, presumably Carrie, spray-painted the phrase, Dave hits women, in large letters on the front door of the shop. In the spring of 2015, two and a half years after Carrie disappeared, two new investigators in Iowa reopened her case. They had reviewed old missing persons reports, and after speaking with Nancy, the two wanted to investigate Carrie's case further. They used a somewhat atypical investigative style. One of the detectives was to look for as many clues as possible that might indicate Carrie was alive. The other had to look for clues that might indicate that Carrie was dead. Nancy was skeptical yet hopeful. No one had ever taken the case this seriously before, 
but she feared the new investigators would give up when they learned that Carrie had been sending messages to people on her phone, email, and Facebook throughout her disappearance. To Nancy's surprise, this wasn't the case. When the police came to speak to Nancy again a few weeks later, they told her that they had sadly come to the conclusion that Carrie was probably dead. Her bank account had not been touched once since her disappearance, nor had a single soul seen Carrie in the two years that had passed. Police did not believe that the threatening messages were actually from Carrie, but suspected that someone might have stolen her identity and sent messages in her name. The Iowa police had reviewed the material collected by Nebraska police in connection with the arson, harassment messages, and the break-in at Liz's apartment. They compared the messages Carrie sent with the emails she had sent from work and found that the writing style was completely different. The threatening messages were not only full of sloppy mistakes, but also major glaring grammatical errors and misspelled words. In the threatening messages, for example, Carrie had always spelled her hometown's name Macedonia as M-E-C-E-D-O-N-I-A. One would think that Carrie would have known the correct spelling for the town she lived in, especially since she had never misspelled the name before she disappeared. The new investigators had also wondered what Carrie's motive for threatening and harassing Liz might be. Both Liz and Dave had said that Carrie didn't know Liz and that the two had never spoken. Why on earth would Carrie harass Liz when, at the time of Carrie's disappearance, Dave and Liz were not even in contact with each other, and their brief relationship had ended almost a month earlier. Police were certain that the person who had killed Carrie was impersonating her and sending messages in her name. But even the police found it odd that the person who had done this had managed to do so for almost three years. The police contacted both Dave and Liz and asked to see the text messages that Carrie had sent to them and to search their mobile phones. All data from both mobile phones was copied to the police computer, including data that had already been deleted from the phones. As the investigation progressed, extraordinary clues and evidence began to emerge, all pointing to the fact that Liz had not been completely honest with the police during the investigation. Liz would hardly have given her phone to the police if she had known that even deleted photos and messages could be recovered by the police. First, data from Liz's mobile phone revealed that she had called Carrie's home phone number a total of six times. Several of the calls were before the day they had passed each other by chance. So Liz must have known that Carrie had started seeing Dave. Liz had also called Carrie's home phone a few times in the week before she disappeared, each time from an unknown number. In addition, two pictures taken with the camera on Liz's phone were found, which caught the attention of police. One was a picture of Carrie's car, which had been taken a month before the car was found in the parking lot near Dave's home. Also, police were able to recover a photograph similar to the one of the woman tied up behind Carrie, which Carrie had sent to Dave on Liz's phone. Here, they found another important piece of evidence against Liz, a picture of the check that had been sent in a text message to Carrie's mother, Nancy. The check was signed with Liz's real and full name, Shanna Golier. The police decided to proceed with the case. Quietly, they would try to get more evidence against Liz, but without her suspecting anything. 
Their first task was to check whether the fingerprints found on the box of Mintz and Carrie's car matched Liz's fingerprints. Then, the case investigators laid an unusual plan to get Liz to reveal more about Carrie. One day, Liz came to the police station unannounced to tell them more about the harassment she had suffered. The police promised that someone would come to see her later that day to talk about the case. The officers who went to Liz's home pretended to have no idea about the stalking case, and somewhat surprisingly, Liz said she no longer believed it was Carrie who was stalking her and Dave. She was now convinced that the stalker was in fact Dave's ex-wife, Amy, who was sending messages in Carrie's name. Liz said it didn't make sense if Carrie was a stalker. She and Carrie didn't know each other, and Carrie had only been with Dave for a very short time. Amy, on the other hand, had known Dave for a long time. They had a long history and two children together. Maybe Amy didn't like Dave living out the single life and had become jealous. The police listened to Liz with assumed interest, even though they knew all along that Liz herself was probably behind the harassment. The police told Liz that she should definitely tell them if she was harassed in the future or if the situation developed. Liz promised to do this and seemed enthusiastic about helping the police. During the conversation, Liz had been told in passing that the stalker had recently broken into Dave's apartment and stolen a gun that Dave had bought to defend himself just a few months earlier. The police had no information about the gun or whether it had been stolen, but they decided to investigate further. Five days later, the emergency services received a call from a woman who said her name was Liz. A tearful and distraught Liz told the staff member that she had been out for an evening walk in Big Lake Park when she had been attacked from behind and shot in the leg. She hadn't seen the shooter, but she thought it was a woman. An extensive search of the park was conducted, and the shooter was searched for on foot and by air, but to no avail. Liz's injuries were not life-threatening. She had been shot in the thigh and had lost some blood, but she survived the shooting without major injuries. In the hospital, Liz was interviewed by a couple of police officers, to whom she said she thought the shooter must have been Dave's former partner, Amy. However, the police did not buy it. They had already obtained Amy's alibi, and there was no possibility that she could have been in the park at the time of the crime. However, the police did not tell Liz this. They told her they would investigate Amy and that Liz should come back and tell them if Amy approached her. After the shooting of Liz, the police contacted Dave to tell him what they had found out during the investigation. Dave couldn't believe his ears when he heard that Liz was a stalker and probably also Carrie's killer. Dave pointed out that he and Liz had received text messages at the same time and while they had been in the same room, and Dave had not seen Liz write any messages. However, the police had a good explanation. On Liz's phone, they had found an app that could be used to schedule the sending of text messages. Dave was understandably shocked and also felt some responsibility for what had happened to Carrie. He felt responsible that Liz and Carrie had crossed paths and that Liz had somehow become obsessed with Carrie. The officers proposed a plan to get Liz to reveal herself. They suggested that Dave pretend that he and Amy had gotten back together and moved in together. Dave agreed, and he and Amy posted on social media that they were now back together. The police kept both Dave and Amy under constant surveillance in case Liz, 
who had been discharged from the hospital, was about to do something. Nothing much happened, but as the police had hoped, Liz took the bait and started sending messages in Carrie's name, claiming to be Amy. For example, she sent a message to herself from Carrie's email address, pretending to be Amy and admitting to shooting Liz in the park. Liz forwarded this email to the police. The police told Liz that they would try to get information from Amy about what had happened to Carrie, and even went so far as to lie to Liz and announce that they had found Carrie's body. They hoped that Liz would believe it and start mentioning it in the messages she sent as Amy in Carrie's name. A few days later, Amy sent a message to Liz suggesting that Carrie had been killed in her car, but the messages said nothing about the whereabouts of Carrie's body. The police searched Carrie's car again and found a large blood stain under one of the seats. Blood, which, according to a subsequent DNA test, belonged to Carrie. Fingerprints from the box of mints found in the car were also analyzed again. At this point, it was no surprise to anyone that the fingerprints turned out to belong to Liz. Eventually, the police arrested Liz, not for the murder, but for not paying some speeding tickets. So Liz didn't know that her interrogation was going to be about anything but that. During the questioning, the police brought Carrie up and started telling Liz about all the evidence they had against her. Liz denied everything, saying, for example, that she had never seen Carrie's car in her life and that she could not have sent emails in Carrie's name as she did not have internet access from her home. Not even things that were completely clear and provable would Liz admit to. She denied everything the police accused her of. At the same time as the questioning, the police searched her home, and the police told Liz that they would continue the questioning once the search was completed and Liz's lawyer was present. At Liz's home, the police made some interesting discoveries. A digital camera and a video camera belonging to Carrie, which Liz had apparently stolen from Carrie's home, were found in the apartment. The video camera contained a recording Carrie had made about a week before she disappeared, of her car with spray paint and scratches on the side. Police suspected that the person who had vandalized the car was Liz. One of the most crucial pieces of evidence was eventually found at Dave's home. He told police that he had previously lent Liz his tablet and there was a memory card in it. When the police examined the contents of the memory card, they discovered a picture of a human leg that had been erased. On the leg was a tattoo, exactly like the one Carrie had on her foot. The picture showed that the foot belonged to a dead person. It was already decomposing, so it was almost certain that Carrie was dead and that Liz knew where her body was. The trial against Liz began in early 2017. Liz's lawyer noted to those present that Carrie's body had never been found, nor had the murder weapon. The defense also argued that it was absurd that an ordinary man like Dave would have made Liz or any other woman react in this way. Dave was not worthy of Liz having to clear Carrie from his path. The defense also pointed out that no one had ever seen Carrie and Liz together, except for Dave who saw them pass each other in front of his apartment. The defense was almost certain that Liz couldn't be convicted on circumstantial evidence alone, without a body and a murder weapon, but it didn't work out that way. The judge found Liz guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced her to life in prison. In court, 
Liz seemed numb and indifferent. But since her conviction, she has sworn her innocence and said she doesn't know what happened to Carrie. Liz believes the real killer is still at large and could start harassing Dave at any time. However, the harassment of Dave and his female acquaintances stopped when Liz was arrested and suspected of Carrie's murder. Carrie's mother and son still don't know exactly what happened to Carrie. It is unclear how she died and how Liz carried out her deeds. It is likely that on the morning Carrie disappeared, Liz stood outside Dave's apartment, waiting for Carrie to leave for work, and attacked her in the apartment building's yard or in her own car. Dave is also still very affected by what happened. He feels remorseful because Liz and Carrie met through him, and since the incident, he has had difficulty trusting others and has stopped internet dating. I myself am very curious as to whether Liz's mental state was examined during the trial or in prison, because I don't think Liz's actions sound like the actions of someone in their right mind. Over a period of three years, Liz sent a total of 15,000 emails to Dave and to herself, plus the text messages, and the police said it must have been so time-consuming that Liz probably didn't have time for much else other than the harassment while it was going on. Liz burned down her own house and killed her own pets in an attempt to make Carrie look like an unstable stalker, all because of a man she had never had a serious relationship with, but had only dated for a few weeks. It would have been interesting to know how long Liz would have continued her behavior if the police had not been able to track her down. Somehow, I feel that if Liz had not been caught, there might have been more victims. That's all I have to say this time. I hope you enjoyed listening. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this was Tracing Darkness. The show is originally created by Tilda Laksonen and adapted into English by Podster. Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll be tracing the steps of another interesting case.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.